0: Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Maker show. So I'm actually very, very excited. I think this is actually the first time that we have two people. In this uh, case, it's going to be two brothers. And that's the Uretsky brothers, Ben and Moisey. So without further ado, guys, uh, welcome to the show today. Hey, thanks so much. Really excited
1: to be here. This is Ben. This is Moisey.
2: Uh, really excited to be here as well.
0: So, so guys, let's do a little bit of a walk through memory lane here, because I know that your, you guys came when I think Ben was five years old from, from Russia. So you came and and you grew up in Brighton beach. So how was that kind of like culture shock of coming here? I know you were a little bit younger, but how was growing up there in, in Brighton beach?
2: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Oh man, I don't know. Uh, I mean, I think the good part was that we were both very young, so at least, this is Moise, so from my perspective, uh, it wasn't much of a culture shock because there wasn't much culture that I had really attained uh, back in Russia, so kind of America became all I knew rather quickly. Uh, I don't know,
1: Ben, would you say that's kind of the same experience that you had? Yeah, definitely, but then we stayed in the neighborhood for what feels like the next 20 years, you know, moving relatively close to uh, King's Highway, than to Sheepshead Bay. And so we really grew up in this Russian community. And I think that certainly played a role in really understanding how you can find different, different communities as part of your life that have very different values and very different, uh, you know, focus and, and areas of interest. So I think, I think that, that was an interesting contrast.
0: And, and what about computers and, and mathematics? So. So how did you both uh, Ben and Moisy how how did you guys start like getting like really excited about about computers?
1: Yeah, so this has been, you know, for me I I don't know what it was, but I just I just love computers from a very early age. I remember I think it was late in elementary school or early junior high so <clears throat> about 5th or 6th grade. Um we were not able to afford a computer at home, so I would go to my friends' houses and copy you know games from from one friend and carry those discs over to uh to a different friend's house this is you know before the days of the internet uh and fix everyone's computer around me so i just i fell in love with you know with the kind of technology at a very very young age um and before that i wanted to be an astronomer wow interesting what about for you
0: mostly
2: uh, it was uh, sort of similar i mean obviously we immigrated from russia with no money so It was a a bit later that our parents were able to afford a computer. Our our first one, I remember ever since we got it, we basically spent all of our time on it, uh, playing around with video games, going to AOL, you know, all the usual stuff. I think as we got older, we got a lot more interested in what computers could do. So obviously for me, that was trying to figure out how to learn how to program just because it kind of seemed exciting to create something from scratch. Uh, Then in the meantime, was really interested in Linux, and I couldn't for the life of me understand why you would want to do that, since I was using Windows, and it was a lot easier to get things done. And he (laughs) would sit there for hours trying to compile drivers to get his modem to work, and I just thought that was really silly. Uh, Fast (laughs) forward a few years, and basically my entire life has been around Linux and terminals and open source software, so it's funny how your perspective can shift. Over time, so obviously, I really learned the value of Linux and uh, really appreciate uh, all of the great contributions, uh, especially from that world and open source and everything else. So it's kind of funny how, as a kid, you see it one way, and as an adult, you kind of expand your horizons.
0: Absolutely. And and what is the uh, age difference between the two of you? Oh, it's, uh, it's a huge difference of a year and three months, <laughs>
2: which has uh, wow. absolutely led to no uh, struggles between us because it's obviously
0: clear who's the older one. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. And do you guys have other brothers and sisters or is just the two of you? Uh, we have one other brother. Uh, he's
2: about, uh, what would you say, that five, six years younger. So he's uh, currently the. Uh, Director of Infrastructure at DigitalOcean, so he's uh, I would say the most responsible brother, <laughs> at least from my perspective.
0: <laughs> right, right. So, so, so let's let's talk about the um, let's shift gears here and talk about education. So, the two of you guys went to the same high school, to Stuyvesant. and then I see that Ben went to Pace, where you did information technology, and then Mosi, what you did is mathematics. So, so what was so obviously we've talked about like computers, but but mostly in your case, why mathematics?
2: Uh, Really simply, I had a horrible guidance counselor at NYU. I always loved math. I was pretty good at it. I was taking a bunch of math classes and my guidance counselor told me, do you want to be a math major? I didn't really think about career or what what any of that meant. So I said, yeah, sure, I guess I'll do that. So I had really poor advice. Obviously, in hindsight, I probably should have focused more on computer science and anyone that I talk to now that's going through college or thinking about career, obviously I steer them towards computer science and software engineering. So really it was kind of a, a bad uh, decision on my part. The, the good part was is that once you get past the, the really simple mathematics like calculus, you get into really abstract math. And that was kind of very interesting because it really shifts how your mind thinks. And I think that really understanding how to prove something from the ground up when you can't even say one is one, but actually what is one to begin with. I think that is a valuable skill when you think about product market fit and really kind of understanding
0: when is something actually true versus when something is an opinion. Got it. And from your perspective, mostly and, and and also with all the background and experience, what, how do you define product market fit? Oh,
2: <laughs> well, I think the, uh, the classic phrase is if you have to question whether or not you have product market fit, then you don't have it. I think for, for digital ocean, that was pretty clear because We started uh, our company, you know, pretty early. We did about six months of development work until Ben, who was the CEO, said, why are you guys still coding? Can you ship something? So we did. And uh, we thought, all right, great. We'll see how many people use it. And then basically no one showed up. And then we went on a longer journey going through Techstars and whatnot. And then finally, in January of 2013, when we did hit our product market fit, it was pretty much like everything was on fire. We went from signing up five customers a day to basically 200 customers a day every single day. So I would say that that analogy, you know, as bad as it sounds to give that as an answer that if you have to question it, you don't have it. Our experience has really been true that when you have it, there's no question whether or not you have it because literally it's just kind of like the ball has rolled down the hill and the momentum is so huge that you're just trying to stay
0: on top of it. And and we'll get into detail ocean in, in in just a second. But but I'd like to really talk about the the beginning for you guys, uh, and that was Server Stack. So so perhaps Ben, maybe you can you can um, share with our listeners like what was the incubation process behind the idea of Server Stack?
1: Yeah, um, I actually worked for a different hosting provider. So Server Stack was also. A managed hosting provider, similar to what Rackspace uh, does. And uh, so I worked for this other hosting provider as a CTO. <clears throat> and it was an interesting story because the CEO uh, basically mismanaged the money uh, and invested a lot into software development for stuff that no one cared about, aka no product market fit, and essentially bankrupted the whole company. And so as I reflected on, you know, what had happened, I realized that I ran the, the hosting division, basically the, the profit center of the entire business, and uh, you know, having kind of the entrepreneurial blood, I'd say, from our father, uh, and also the entrepreneurial drive, um, decided to uh, basically build the exact same company from the, from the ground up. And the funny thing is that <clears throat> I started off, even though as a CTO, uh, I was still in the data center, you know, building out those initial racks. And uh, it got kind of uh, tiring. So then <laughs> to delegate, as any good executive does, I brought in Moisey, my brother, to take on the data center work. <laughs> uh, so, so when that when that hosting company uh, went bankrupt, basically Moisey and I, uh, you know, we, we tapped into our savings. Uh, we bought 10 servers and a switch, found some co-location space and, uh, you know, built build the company from there. We were able to, rescue a couple of customers from the now defunct, uh, company and, uh, you know, kind of get our, 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 our start. Um, and essentially we were profitable. You could say from, from the first month, uh, other than the $10,000 invested into really generate, you know, into creating the, the business. And, you know, we grew it from there. It was kind of hand to hand combat, trying to go out and, and find, find new customers.
0: You know, it's interesting, uh, Ben, because the, um, there's this book called The Founder Dilemma, and and Mosi and Ben, you guys probably have read it or, or heard of it, but but basically he says how how it's a little bit tougher when you're working with with family members, right? And and look, I built the last business with my wife, so so I know the drill. So so I guess in your guys' case, like how were you able to kind of like divide and conquer so that you would not step into each other's uh, toes?
2: <laughs> well, I wish I, was, uh, I could say that we were able to divide and conquer uh, effectively, but I think a lot of, uh, I think that took a long time. Uh, I think based on my experience, I think when it comes to family members or even close friends that start a business, usually whatever relationship you have prior to the business gets carried over into the business. And then if you hit product market fit or various things happen where the stress level increases, it basically increases both the highs and the lows. So wherever you found alignment or whatever brought you together, the highs are obviously higher because of your close relationship. But then at the same time, as the stress increases, if there's disagreements, you're naturally going to be bringing in the prior relationship as well, just because it's really hard to break that context uh, when it comes to work. And especially for us. If your brother's uh, similar to you, like with your wife, there's not a lot of downtime, because even if we go to our grandmother's house for like just a Sunday evening, naturally, we're going to talk about work. So it kind of becomes this all encompassing thing. But I think over time, we really began to understand each other's strengths and each other's weaknesses and then try to figure out how to actually align more around those things to kind of put each person into a position of success.
0: Got it. So what about for you, Ben? Yeah, I think everything
1: that Moisey said, um, I agree with. It's interesting that actually through the stress of building this company together, you know, I think we hit a rock bottom point where our relationship was at the absolute worst. Um, in some ways, you know, we were trending in that direction for the first 35 years, ever since Moisey was born and entered into the family. <laughs> right. And so just interesting that we hit, you know, rock bottom in the middle of the Digital Ocean adventure. Uh, super, you know, thrilled that we were able to find this. Um, I don't know. I mean, I guess executive coach is the official title, but he's so much more than that. Jerry Colonna from from the Reboot Network, who uh, you know, his background just really brief. He was a, a venture investor at Flat Ventures here in New York with Fred Wilson in the early days. Um, you know, kind of got to a point where he was almost on twenty boards and. Didn't you know his life didn't make sense? So he uh, actually escaped out to Tibet. Kind of, you know, started going down a very Buddhist uh, route, and and now does leadership and kind of executive coaching. Has worked with the, you know all the premier businesses, and he uh, he really clicked with us. He said, you know, our family dynamic really reminding him of his, and uh, he really wanted to help us out. And I re- I still remember uh, you know that that initial meeting and. And, uh, you know, I'd, I'd say if it wasn't for Jerry, I don't even know where our relationship would stand. But I'm also super, uh, you know, proud and happy to say that right now, Moisey and I are, the, are on the best terms ever. Uh, and, and
0: I don't know if we would have gotten there um, if it wasn't for DigitalOcean and and Jerry, of course. So what was, uh, a, was there like a breakthrough moment in your guys' relationship? Yeah. I mean, multiple, I mean, Jerry follows the standard playbook, right? Hug it out.
1: You know, he makes you cry. Uh, and, and the other thing that I found really comforting is he basically says, look, it's not really entirely your fault. You know, your parents did this to you, but, uh, the good news is <laughs> it's not your parents fault either. Cause their parents did it to you, uh, okay. did it to them rather. And so then he, you know, he ultimately slaps you with the hardest question. You know, now I'm a a father of two kids. So he basically says, well, is this the bullshit that you want to pass down to your kids? Right. And so, I mean, he's just very good, um, uh, you know, at really focusing on your personal development and exposing the things that, you know, kind of the shadow qualities They're your superpower on the one hand. But as a result, you know, you also suffer some consequences. Uh, You know, I think for me, I was very emotionally closed off. Um, which was great because you're able to stay level-headed in very tough situations. You can kind of optimize for the best interests of the businesses, but I think it came at a great, you know, personal toll of, um, you know, being perceived like an asshole, um, you know, very difficult relationships with my significant other, who's now my wife, um, you know, and, and all these other dynamics where for a long time, you know, you don't actually feel like yourself, but you don't even know it. And now, when I contrast back and look over the last 10 years, I, am, I, I finally feel like like myself again and, and wonder about all those years where I was kind of, you know, lost walking around with a mask.
0: Got it. Got it. Got it. So how how do you see it um, uh, as well, uh, Mosey?
2: Uh, yeah, I mean, I think what Ben said is absolutely true. I mean, definitely without Jerry's help, I don't think that we would be <laughs> where we are today. And I think that it's really unique to find an individual like him because he has a lot of business experience, so you're, he's, you're working on your personal relationship because ultimately any company uh, is a reflection of the leadership team, and especially of the founding team. And if there are problems in that team, it's gonna trickle down into the organization. And he has this unique ability because of his business experience to not only discuss the business side of things, but due to his own personal nature, really get to the heart of who you are as an individual. And so oftentimes, When stress gets high or there's a conflict of opinion, you kind of get a little bit too emotional or you resort to these behaviors that don't really work for you. And if you don't have somebody from the outside who you respect and trust to really kind of pull you back, give you a new experience, give you a new perspective, it's really challenging to make that kind of progress. And basically, that's the advice that I give to all founders is it's okay to have founder conflict. It's going to happen and some companies have more of it than others. But what's not okay is not to bring somebody else in from the outside who you trust, who has the best interests of the founders at heart to help you work through it. Because this is not a unique experience. This happens to a lot of companies and a lot of teams. And there are people like Jerry who are fantastic at helping you get through this. And if you can get them on board, you can really see clearly, are you meant to move forward or is there you know, a problem that's greater than what you could surmount, or maybe it's just you actually want to go in different directions. So I think in business in general, one of the main things that I would tell myself and any founder is, you're probably not facing a unique challenge. You're probably facing a challenge that numerous companies and numerous individuals have faced before. So get advisors, build your network, and get the experience that somebody else has already learned through their mistakes and learn from theirs instead of doing it all over again and making the same mistakes over and over again.
0: Got it. Got it. So, so then moving from server stack uh, to DigitalOcean, just so that listeners are able to understand the transition. So, so what happened there? So, uh, you know, about
1: eight years into building ServerStack, um, we were in a fortunate position because we were generating real revenue. We grew it to maybe five or six million in annual revenue. We had about twenty employees, uh, no outside investment, so it was a bootstrap business, and things were going okay, okay. But there were really two problems. Number one, you know, we were going head to head with Rackspace. On ideal prospects, on ideal, potential ideal customers, and the conversations would sound really funny. It's like you know we're offering half half the cost uh, on newer hardware and basically an unlimited amount of uh, support. And you know the customer would even say the reason I reached out to you guys is <clears throat> I've used Rackspace in the past. It wasn't a great experience, so I'm looking for alternatives. And then you get this kind of like two weeks of radio silence. After which, when they finally surface, they basically say, well, we chose Rackspace. And you're like, obviously, that was you know the, the best decision you could make. And I think that, that was very frustrating, right? And, and all of this really boils down to Rackspace owned the position in the market around uh, managed service. You know, they had a tagline, fanatical support. They were a publicly traded company. And essentially, no one got fired for choosing Rackspace. So that was, you know, frustrating. Uh, But to make matters even worse and what we really felt was an existential threat, um, AWS, you know, had started a couple of years earlier and by 2011 had really become uh, mainstream to a point where, you know, even we believe that a much better way if you're building a new application, you know, a new service, um, the right way to build it is actually in the cloud rather than, you know, using kind of a, a provider like, like server stack. And so that forced us to go back to the drawing board and really figure out, you know, like, what do we want to do over the next five years? And, and I think that was, you know, a great opportunity for us to take uh, stock of what we knew and what we did well. Essentially, the, the business side, the, uh, the technology as well. And also acknowledge where we needed to um, improve, mainly on on the marketing, on the positioning, on the differentiation. And so we started reading a whole bunch of literature, um, everything from Crossing the Chasm to Blue Ocean Strategy and beyond, um, and started trying to apply those lessons to uh, building a, a new company. And one of the key things we we learned in this is that. Um, Many companies were expanding their brand portfolio by introducing uh, cloud as yet another offering of what they do, but their brands were not strong enough. So Rackspace is a great example, once again, where they introduced the cloud offering, but it never really took off to the same extent as, you know, as, as Amazon. Amazon, um, you know, software was another big name in the space later acquired by IBM versus you know, who today you see as the premier cloud providers like the, the Amazon, Microsoft, Google, uh, their brands were strong enough, they were able to differentiate sufficiently and have a single laser focus. Anyway, my point was, it became clear to us that we were not able to um, build a, a new offering within the server stack company, and we needed to start from the ground up with an entirely new business with a unique differentiated position, so we wouldn't wind up in the same situation as we were with Rackspace, and also uh, you know far apart from the from the main competitors, mainly the, the AWS um, you know offering. And so we spent a lot of time trying to figure it out. Um, and you know it kind of looks easy in in hindsight, but I remember those conversations very vividly, and it was very difficult to try to navigate a world where, on the one side with AWS, you have, you know, price, uh, at least perceived price leadership, you know, engineering um, kind of talent or abundance, um, you know, a ton of functionality. And then in the middle, you have Rackspace that's able to provide that white glove service and support. And so it was hard to figure out where we would really stake our our own ground. And then ultimately, you know, kind of combine these two passions where, I loved building out infrastructure, as you know, as Moisey mentioned, from a very early age. Um, and Moisey loved uh, developing software. And so, what we realized is that combining these two disciplines together, we were able to build something for developers because they were basically us, and focus on the uh, the startup, the small business segment, provide a much better user experience, make it really easy to use, but still powerful building blocks. Um, that allowed developers to build their applications faster rather than, you know, going through the, the, the pain and the, uh, you know, the challenges of building something complex with, you know, an AWS or one of these other major clouds where things are opaque, you know, they're closed, a lot of proprietary terms, uh, support is lackluster, pricing is difficult to understand, you know, kind of list just goes on and on. And we
0: were able to build a product that customers absolutely loved. And, and, and I want to ask you here, so obviously Digital Ocean is born, but, but Mosey, walk us through why did you guys decide to bring other co-founders to the mix? Because you already had each other, uh, you had been working on this other company and server stack for quite a bit. So why bringing other co-founders to the mix, Mosey? Well, I mean, I think as Ben said, it's about finding your strengths and weaknesses
2: and understanding what you could and couldn't do. And for us, You know, Ben was great on the infrastructure side. Uh, He was great on the operation side. I really love software engineering, but I would say that due to my career and perhaps my choices in education, I was never going to be a great software engineer because I could never dedicate enough time to it. So it became pretty clear very early on that we're going to need a couple of engineers to help build out this cloud for us. So basically at that point, I realized that my best role would be a product role since I understand Kind of all sides of the equation and what i really wanted to focus on was the emotional connection to the customer and so we were able to get uh jeff carr who we call the cloud father (laughs) internally (laughs) he was our uh you know the the cloud architect he basically built the entire back end single-handedly himself the amount of work he did is tremendous it can't be understated without him there would definitely be no digital ocean and um Through a brief stint in between, I was able to meet this other individual, Alec Hartman, who ended up becoming uh, the front end side of things. And I, as the product person, basically literally sat between the two of them. And I would poke each one of them and then also mediate, you know, when are we going to side with the back end? When are we going to side with the front end to kind of bring this all together? And then through our experiences of learning how critical uh, marketing obviously is, we knew that we needed to have, you know, having a position was great. And we started off with a simple cloud, obviously, but you still needed to have somebody who was going to really focus on marketing. And that's where Mitch Wainer came into the equation as somebody who has done marketing for a while and somebody who really fits into the culture of our company and into kind of the founding team. So... Between the five of us, we had a really good complementary team. We had one person dedicated to the back end, one person dedicated to the front end, uh, me and the product kind of sitting in between, Ben on the operations and infrastructure side and the fundraising side, and then Mitch solely focused on the marketing side. So we really had a good complementary team to move forward, and that also helps to create a little bit of delineation about who is responsible for what, and that allowed us to really focus and get things done rather quickly.
0: Really cool, really cool. And and Ben, why why did you guys decide to pack up the luggage and, and go to TechStars? Uh,
1: yeah. I mean, the the reason we applied to TechStars in the first place and our first attempt was in in New York is uh we had a we we had the ambition of of building a company for for massive scale. Uh, you know, really really proud to say that we built something that even exceeded those expectations, you know, by, by a whole football field, but that's a different, you know, uh, kind of consideration. And so, because we wanted to build, uh, something that would, uh, be, you know, ready, ready for scale. Um, it was, you know, we, we, we assumed that we would need some additional outside capital to help, uh, to help fund, fund the project and the we had no uh network inside of the venture community and so um you know it, it looked like tech stars was a great environment in which we could build those connections and really learn about kind of venture funding venture-backed startups and have not only a you know great set of mentors but also a great set of peer companies that are going through the same building process as us so you know long story short Uh, We didn't get into the New York program, but about two weeks after the final decision, uh, David Tish reached out and basically who was the managing director um, and basically said, uh, hey, I kind of really regret passing on you guys because you had an awesome team and an awesome product. But I just, you know, I don't really know what a server is. I wouldn't be that helpful for you. And he really recommended that we apply to uh, to Boulder, Colorado. Um, which is where TechStars actually started, and uh, ultimately we got into that program, and and then decided, hey, it was you know we we were really making big bets at the time, so this felt like yet another one um, that you know you just you just have to do on 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 your journey. It was especially tough, you know, for me because I I I just got married uh, the year before in in August of 2011, and by May of 2012 you know, I'm, I'm flying out to Boulder for three months and I, and I, and I don't see my wife. Uh, you know, I came back just a couple of, you know, a few days throughout that three month period. So that was definitely very, uh,
0: challenging on, you know, this, this new blossoming relationship. Absolutely. I can't, I can't even imagine. So, so mostly, so after going through, because you're really the, um, the product guy here in the picture, especially at this time. So, So after going through this program and and optimizing a little bit and and like Ben was saying, like really understanding the different processes, whether it's a fundraising or or let's say hiring from a business model perspective, what ended up being the business model of DigitalOcean when you guys came out of, of that program? Well, the good news for us is that we
2: didn't really have to struggle with the business model because we were in an existing market environment where developers and businesses were comfortable and used to paying for cloud and hosting infrastructure. So there was really never a question around that. We would basically follow the same model, we're gonna provide you a virtual server, you're gonna pay us money, we're gonna charge you more than it costs us, and we're gonna make some profit and move forward. I think the, um, the complicated part was really finding the product market fits to scale that. And when we first built the company, we, we had this experience of really loving the product that we built. I remember the first time that I launched the Droplet, I fell in love with the experience so much so that I wanted to quit the company and just become a full-time Rails engineer so I could launch more Droplets. It was that exciting. And obviously, as somebody who's creating the product, it, it's hard to be objective. Obviously, you have a subjective point of view, but a lot of the customers that we did acquire were really echoing those very same strong sentiments of love, love, love. And when we applied to Techstars, that that was really written into our application when they said, what's your differentiator? And I felt it was a bit challenging for us to say that we're going to have a stronger engineering effort with two and a half developers than a company the size of AWS. So we put down love. (laughs) <laughs> and at first, uh, Nicole Glaros, who the managing director of Techstars Boulder, at first she looked at us like we were crazy. And what do we put down? Love as a differentiator. How is this going to scale This doesn't make any sense. But we told her, you know, look out into the ecosystem. Look at the comments that users are saying about Rackspace or AWS. And then look at the same comments they're saying about DigitalOcean. And there was a really stark contrast between the experience that we provided to our customers and what our competitors provided. So the customers that we did acquire really did love us. And that was something that we nurtured from the very start just because of how much we passionately cared about them and about the product that we were developing. The thing that we realized over time is that love by itself is actually not enough to get your product market fit. And that's where that big question always came up for us after we left Techstars is, okay, we have some customers that love us, but we're not really growing as quickly as we would like. And obviously at the time, we were bootstrapping the business ourselves. So we didn't really have an infinite runway to do this. And we already had the product company server stack as kind of a benchmark of saying, hey, you know, we hope to be at least as successful as this company. And we were nowhere close to hitting those numbers. And that's when it became quite obvious that we didn't have product market fit because we were still struggling to find it. And the one thing that kept us going was actually this message of love, because we knew that we had built something that resonated with customers, and what we were lacking was something on the marketing side, Like we did not have enough awareness. And we experimented a lot with that, you know, trying different forms of advertising and so forth, but that was difficult to scale and very expensive. So we knew that the only way to basically grow this company is to get organic awareness, and for us that was basically hacker news <laughs> you know that's the main place for developers to hang out but the challenge with hacker news is that you can't advertise there so you have to have some sort of a message that's strong enough that the community over there will pick it up and get excited about it and that question which kind of stuck with me was the one that led us to the whole notion of well maybe we should build an ssd cloud and i was sitting behind my laptop uh, it was the first one that i had gotten cuz i hated laptops and I'm working on it, and I'm thinking to myself, my laptop has SSDs, and this is a consumer product. Meanwhile, the cloud is supposed to be the future of business, and nobody has SSDs in the cloud. And from server stack, we knew that if you put SSDs into a server, the server becomes four times faster because the hard drive is a limiting factor, especially for databases. So I came to Ben and I said, you know what? We're gonna put SSDs into the cloud. Our entire cloud is gonna be SSD only. (laughs) And Ben said, famously, well, you know, if this doesn't work, we have to kill this idea because all of these servers are going to be twice as expensive. We're not making any money as it is. So you want me to spend even more money and you would have to wait three months to get enough inventories to even announce that we have an SSD cloud. And uh, basically, you know, know, between myself with the SSDs, uh, Jeff having uh, a lot of opportunities to kind of improve the efficiency of the cloud because of the SSD drives. We were able to double the RAM, and then Ben always loved the $5-foot-long Subway sandwiches in terms of the ads that they did. So he said it's going to be $5, and that was basically what we came to the market, which is you know, an SSD cloud, which had a wonderful user experience that customers already love, and it was going to cost you $5 when the closest competitor would charge you 20 for the same service, and they wouldn't even have SSDs to begin with, and that message, obviously, was quite strong and resonated quite strongly with Hacker News in that community, and we basically, you know, overnight went from you know five or a trickle of signups a day to you know several hundred every single day.
0: That's really cool, and I believe that the um, what it was posted on Hacker News, it was a TechCrunch article. Is that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Really, cool. really cool. So, so, so Ben, uh, let's talk about fundraising here because I, I would assume that you know, now you guys are, you know, on a growth, really nice growth trajectory. So financing is required. So all in all, how much capital has been uh, raised that is publicly uh, reported? Yeah. So uh, we've raised 123 million. One, two, three. One, two, three. That, okay, great. And and I see that you guys have unbelievable investors. So people like Andreessen Horowitz and, and people like IA Ventures. So so how did you find those, those investors and how did you close them? Yeah, well, <clears throat> I mean, each round is you know, a very unique
1: story, but um, IA Ventures, uh, actually, I'd love for Moisey to talk about IA Ventures because he really struck up that relationship first and then I can take on the Andreessen Horowitz for the A round. There's, uh, between Serverstack and
2: DigitalOcean, I had a brief stint as a co-founder with a friend of mine doing a financial services company focused on hedge funds. And one of the few investors in New York City that actually had a FinTech focus was IA Ventures. So we reached out to them, kind of a cold email, and said, hey, we'd love to really show you what we've been working on. And Brad Gillespie replied back, uh, yeah, this doesn't really fit our, our portfolio of what we're looking for. And I told him, oh man, that's really disappointing. I'd love to give you a demo and, and get your feedback. And Brad being, product person himself he has a hard time saying no to a demo so even if he's not going to invest he's still he's definitely a people person said yeah sure come by let's have a conversation so we came by uh he didn't love it (laughs) he didn't invest obviously and then uh you know a few months later we started working on DigitalOcean. and i remembered the age-old advice which is if you uh, go asking for money you won't get it if you ask for advice you might get some money so When we first built DigitalOcean, again, same thing, reached out to Brad, came by, showed him a demo. He looked at it and, uh, you know, told him we're going to compete with AWS. He thought that we were crazy (laughs) and out of our minds. Uh, But I recommended to him, like, hey, you know, do you think Techstars is a good idea? And I knew, of course, that they were an investor in Techstars, so he gave us an introduction to David Tisch. And then we went through the whole program, and we would send him updates you know, basically on a weekly or monthly basis, whenever something happened. And the entire time, you know, he'd always reply very quickly. Uh, But it was always kind of like, oh, this is great. Keep going and keep going, keep going. And like, all right, no investment yet. And then after we hit product market fit, uh, I sent him another email saying, hey, you know, here's our revenue. Here's where we're at. And for the first time, he didn't get back to us. Usually it's, you know, within a day, it's an immediate response. And this time, it was like the response came two weeks later, which is a bit surprising, especially because our numbers were pretty exciting. And it turned out that they were actually adding a partner to the business, so they were a bit busy with that. So we came into the office to kind of catch up. The first thing we told them is, you know, just so you know, in the three weeks that we haven't spoken, the company has grown another 66%. <laughs> so at that point, Brad was like, okay, this sounds super exciting, uh, definitely very interesting. And uh, it was really interesting because uh, Ben was trying to raise a um, angel round during the Techstars program. But he decided that it really wasn't worth the investment of time and the amount of capital we were raised would not really significantly change the business. So our seed round was really a pitch to one investor, but it just took about two years to get the deal done. But obviously, we're very excited and happy to have Brad on board and and to have basically him be a part of the company from the very first moment, you know, getting the first demo before the product was even live. I think from there, the uh, the story about the A round with Andreessen is equally as exciting, but that one, uh, Ben led the effort on.
0: Okay, cool. So Ben, how was that effort like?
1: Yeah, sure. Um, I would say, so So yeah, so we, we closed the round with IA Ventures. You know, we we think, OK, we have 18 months of runway and, you know, we're ready to go back to executing. And about three months into it, as we keep up this breakneck, you know, pace of growth, we're like, oh, my God, we're running out of cash again. I can't believe it. <laughs> um, so we decide, OK, let's let's go and raise capital yet again, you know, in, in under six months after having closed the seed round. Uh, So we put together, like any, you know, respecting uh, entrepreneur, uh, a beautiful spreadsheet uh, of the top 10, you know, VCs out West in Silicon Valley this time. And then we leveraged uh, Techstars as well as IA Ventures to get introductions to all of them. Uh, We picked a horrible week to do it, which was basically the week right before Thanksgiving. So everyone's already starting to kind of go on vacation, but we managed to pull it off and know, we did like a mini road show out there, um, four days where we pitched, uh, you know, everyone from Sequoia to NEA Excel and just, you know, the who's who of Silicon Valley. Um, and you know, the interesting thing is, was the meeting, the initial meeting with Andreessen Horowitz where, uh, Peter Levine, who's now on our board, uh, we love reminiscing about this. He's, you know, he takes the meeting very reluctantly. You can kind of tell by his body language because He's he's kicked back, you know, both legs up on the table, what looks like to be checked out on his phone, you know, for the first 30 minutes. And I have uh, uh, Moisey and Carl, our chief operations officer that are, you know, pitching him hard. And Peter doesn't say a word uh, for 30 minutes. And I'm kind of looking at my watch going like, oh, no, this this meeting is going horribly. And (laughs) the reason is the uh, the preferred investor. And so I finally decide to take over and kind of lean in. And I'm like, Peter, are you getting any of this? And the thing is, you know, I hadn't actually even looked up his background uh, before the meeting, which is a huge shame on me, not knowing that he was the CEO of ZenSource and new virtualization, you know, inside out, sold that company to Citrix for, uh, you know, $500 million. Um, But the, the good news <laughs> is that, you know, it, it really kind of brought, you know, jolted Peter back to life. And he's like, yeah, yeah, it was to- totally got all of that, right? And so he completely switched on a dime. And uh, basically said, look, uh, just, you know, at, the, at, at Andreessen, at and the firm here, we had a thesis that it would be a huge enterprise player that would really, you know, give competition to AWS. And so it's exci- super exciting to see a startup uh, like you guys that uh, is differentiated and, and really making uh, traction here. And, you know, so like that uh, ultimately turned into uh, getting the deal done with Andreessen Horowitz. And I think we found this really amazing partner
0: um you know to bring along for the ride really cool really cool and and how have you seen been for example like the um the expectation shift from financing cycle to financing cycle
1: yeah i mean uh i think especially like in super successful businesses that scale rapidly right your seed investors are are typically over the moon cuz the returns are just amazing um you know even the a round can be very uh very thrilled and then as you get into the like the later stages You know, it becomes a little bit more of a kind of a financial equation. Are you delivering on the IRR expectations and things of that sort? So sometimes those conversations take on a little bit more of a financial undertone rather than maybe a strategic. Um, But overall, I think it creates a really good board dynamic because you have the whole kind of spectrum of of perspectives available to the table. And then it's been actually great to bring in a couple of independents to help
0: balance out. You know, just an investor-only perspective. Got it. And mostly how for the people that are listening as well, so that they get a sense of, of how big DigitalOcean is today, how, how big is it?
2: So today we're, we just crossed uh, 500 people, uh, over $200 million in revenue. So to think about where we started with five individuals and $0 in revenue, I mean, it's obviously very exciting. I think it's been mentioned before. I think in our wildest dreams we didn't think that it would grow to this size. So, you know, I think that's uh, that's fantastic. So, really super excited about it, and obviously more growth to come. I mean, we've launched the most number of products we have in the last 18 months, and the roadmap looks really good for the next 18 months as well.
0: That's really cool. And I saw that uh, recently you brought on board um, a new CEO. So, um, so how was how was this experience, especially? i guess for you ben because you were the um, the founding ceo you know kind of like to to let it go and 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 to step it up on the on the board how was this experience
1: yeah um you know, it was really uh it's it's very unique right it's it's not often that you're able to to build something um and and then pass it over to someone else and you know it it really is a part of you so in many ways it's challenging right but i think what was very helpful and i feel like i've done this a few times um in in the role is to remove my uh self interest out of the equation and really think on behalf of the company like what does the company need and and what decisions should the company make um and so you know what it really boiled down to was um, the next logical step seems to be, you know, taking the company public. Um, and as I thought about that journey and and you know that challenge, while obviously it's super exciting to be able to IPO the business, uh, I kind of thought about you know the couple of years thereafter and running a, a a public company, and it really was not where I got my energy and passion. Um, and so, you know, I had to make this really difficult uh, decision on what is in the best interest of the business. And obviously, you're holding on as a as a co-founder, as you know, the kind of the, the creator, because you really don't want to let go of that part. It's a huge ego uh, trip, if you will. But uh, ultimately, I came to the decision that uh, you know, bringing on board the right CEO could actually continue to grow the business and would be in the best interest of, of everyone, including myself. Um And, you know, it, it, I, I put in a lot of work. Basically, I knew that this was the last decision that I was going to make that would have, in, in many ways, some of the biggest impact on the business, uh, you know, going forward. Uh, and so, you know, I really put a lot of time and effort into making sure that we got the right person on board. And actually, you know, there's a really interesting background story here. Uh, Peter Levine from Andreessen, who's on our board um, made an introduction to Mark Templeton, who is the new CEO, um, you know, a few months prior to us making this decision, um, because Mark, uh, you know, kind of, he's in the later stage of his career. Uh, he was advising companies and things of that sort. And so we built this amazing relationship and it was only halfway into the recruiting process where, you know, the best candidates I saw were maybe a four out of five, but there was no five out of four. No, there was no five star candidate yet. And I knew that in order to do uh, the, the only way that we could ever close and, and bring on a new CEO was if they met this unreasonably high bar of being a five star candidate. And it was funny because Mark was actually helping. He was saying, hey, you know, I'm a chairman on this other board. We just did a CEO search um, you know, your exec recruiters probably sent you like a 10 page document. Nobody has any idea of what you're looking for. What we found to be helpful is if you can condense it down to just a single page, you know, four or five bullets, um, here, let me share with you the template that we used. And so once I got that template and I refactored it for what DigitalOcean needed, uh, kind of reviewed it. I'm like, looking over the the bullets and I'm like check 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 and it turned out that mark was actually you know 5 out of 5 a perfect fit for for the job and so I send him back the edited version and in the very last line of the email I'm like mark what do you think about the role um, and so it was this very serendipitous kind of you know coming together of all these different uh, you know experiences and and different paths and obviously ultimately mark accepted and you know we've built an amazing relationship Uh, you know, the three of us, Moisey and I and Mark, we have a chance to sit down, you know, every like four to six weeks. And, you know, we hash out in in an afternoon working session. We'll do some dinner. You know, we've really grown to be more than just, you know, business partners. And I'd say I'd even call him a friend uh, at this point. And, and, you know, uh, for me, I I feel I feel great as well. Uh, Just a lot of changes on the personal side. So (laughs) uh, it's just interesting that, When we signed the term sheet with Andreessen Horowitz, my first, uh, my my daughter was born on the same day. And there was like an office pool on what's coming first, the term sheet or the baby. Um, And then when Mark started, uh, you know, last summer in July of 2018, actually I had my second kid. So my son was born on July 3rd and Mark's kind of official day is July 1st. Uh, So in the same week, you know, I went into paternity leave slash kind of transitioning out of the role. Um, and so, just you know,
0: seeing these two experiences side by side and um, ha- has been amazing. Absolutely. And and Mark for the listeners is Mark Templeton, and he was the uh, president and CEO of Citrix Systems from 2001 to 2015. So incredible, incredible CV. So so I always ask this question to to guests that that are on the show, and they, I'd like to get the answer from you, uh, Mosi, and then from from Ben. And the question is if you had to go back in time, knowing what you know now, and give yourself one piece of advice before launching a business, what would that be and why, Mosi?
2: Oh, oh man. Well, so I think there's two pieces of advice that I would give. So um, it's funny because the first piece of advice is actually what we followed between server stack and DigitalOcean. And that was mainly around education. And that is to read a tremendous amount of books because, again, the problems you're facing are not unique. And if you have the understanding of how business operates and you understand things like positioning and crossing the chasm and innovators dilemma, uh, you're not going to make silly mistakes. So number one is definitely read, get a network and things of that nature. And if you can't get a network. You know the smartest people in the world are writing books and those are available for a very small cost and gives you basically direct access to their thoughts and knowledge so we followed that piece of advice and obviously the business is a hundred times larger than server stack was so that seemed to work well and then i guess as i reflect on my time at DigitalOcean, i think the second piece of advice that i would give is really one that's more personal which is that you know once you have this logical understanding which is great It's kind of hard to you have to remember that you're still a human being, (laughs) as surprising as that sounds. And what that means is that there's going to be a lot of emotions involved in what you're doing. And as Ben mentioned before, you'll have some shadow qualities, which on the one hand are very powerful because they're your main motivators and they allow you to get stuff done. Uh, But taken to excess, they can cause problems. So I think the second part of that equation is really to understand yourself as an individual and to really focus on your emotional well-being and your emotional growth. Because once the business is no longer five people of co-founders, you know those interpersonal relationships with the leadership team, the founding team, the, the investors you bring on board, the employees you bring on board, take on a heightened meaning. And I think that lesson was one that I've continued to learn throughout DigitalOcean's journey. And I think it's one that I've only really begun to, I guess, understand or hopefully operate well in as I became just a board member and not a full-time individual of the business because it's given me so much more clarity to step back and see where a lot of problems were ones that I created and they weren't based around logic they were based around just me as an individual and how much more I had to grow and mature and really understand other people and myself as well
0: I love it what about for you Ben yeah, for me, I'd say the, the advice
1: is um, that a business ultimately becomes about the people. And I know that it's a little kind of cliche, um, but I think, you know, when we were building out the business model for DigitalOcean, we spent a lot of time on the, on the product and the technology. Um, we spent a lot of time on the on the go to market. How how would we build awareness and reach, and how would we uh, enable sales? By the way, you know we've gotten here without salespeople, and everything is really done through the website. Um, but the the point really is, I don't think I had a model for you know what people and culture means for a business as I had always worked in very in relatively small companies where. Um, Kind of the culture is is very implicit, but it's easy to manage because, you know, when you have at most 20 people, you're still all in the same room. You know what everyone's working on and just it's it's um, it's implicit in the environment. And I would say, you know, that first year, as soon as we got our funding and traction in 2013, we grew from just about 20 people or so to a little bit over 100. (laughs) And, you know, things were and it was a totally different world. And, uh, you know, I kind of already came from the perspective that, hey, it's easier to manage uh, a server than it is to manage a person. And that only, you know, really became that much more complicated as the business grew. And I think, you know, an area where we would have been able to build a much stronger foundation is if we had built in a people kind of philosophy and and a really strong cultural underpinning. I think, you know, we've gotten there and, and, uh, our, our culture is the best that it's ever been, but it'd be really exciting to be able to build a business where you're able to incorporate what I believe are these three key key pillars for any company between, you know, the, the product technology, the go to market, and and then the people and the culture side. So if anything, I would say, you know, uh, that it's not just about you, it's about everyone you're going to hire and, and really think about how do you build
0: the right environment for them to be successful. Got it. So, so for the people that are that are listening, what is the best way to reach out and, and say hi, Mosi, for you?
2: Uh, I mean, I'm pretty easy to find. I mean, you can find me on, uh, on Twitter as Mosey Oretzky. I still have my DigitalOcean email address, which is pretty much my first name at DigitalOcean. So I'm not a difficult person to track down. And I'm always happy to talk to anyone uh, if they need any advice or anything else like that, because we've gotten a lot of help on our journey. So I kind of consider it paying it forward and helping other people as well as, as, as part of what makes the world successful. So
1: I'm, I'm easy to find.
0: Amazing. And what about for you, Ben? Yeah, same. So Twitter
1: is at Ben Yuretsky and uh, email is Ben at digitalocean.com. Either one
0: works great. Got it. Well, guys, it has been a pleasure to have you both. Thank you so, so much for being on the Dealmaker Show. Absolutely. Enjoyed it. Thanks a lot, Alejandro